A bite of stars, a slug of time, and thou. The bulletin came through blurred with fear. Somebody is dancing on our graves," said Charleroi. His gaze lifted to include the entire earth. This will make a fine mausoleum. Your words are strange," she said. "Yet there is that in your manner which I find pleasing. Come closer, stranger, and explain yourself." I stepped back and withdrew my sword from its scabbard. Beside me, I heard a metallic hiss. Octopus Marn had drawn his sword too, and now he stood with me, back to back, as the Megan's horde approached. Now shall we sell our lives dearly, John Westerly," said Octopus Marn in the peculiar guttural hiss of the Minarian race. Indeed, we shall," I replied. And there will be more than one widow to dance the passage king before this day is through. He nodded. And some disconsolate fathers will make the lonely sacrifice to the god of deteriorations. We smiled at each other's staunch words. Yet it was no laughing matter. The Megan's bucks advanced slowly, implacably, across the green, purple moss sward. They had drawn their rafty. Those long, curved, double-pointed dirks that had struck terror in the innermost recesses of the civilized galaxy. We waited. The first blade crossed mine. I parried, thrust, catching the big fellow full in the throat. He reeled back, and I set myself for my next antagonist. The two of them came at me this time. I could hear the sharp intake of Octopus's breath as he hacked and hewed with his sword. The situation was utterly hopeless. I thought of the unprecedented combination of circumstances that had brought me to this situation. I thought of the cities of the Terran plurality, whose very existence depended on the foredoomed outcome of this present impasse. I thought of autumn in Carcassonne, hazy mornings in Saskatoon, steel-colored rain falling on the Black Hills. Was all this to pass? Surely not. And yet, why not? We said to the computer, "These are the factors. This is our predicament. Do us the favor of solving our problem and saving our lives and the lives of all Earth." The computer computed. It said, "The problem cannot be solved." Then how are we going about saving Earth from destruction? You don't, the computer told us. We left sadly. But then Jenkins said, "What the hell? That was only one computer's opinion. That cheered us up." We held our heads high. We decided to take further consultations. The gypsy turned the card. It came up final judgment. We left sadly. Then Myers said, "Hey, what the hell? That's only one gypsy's opinion." And that cheered us up. We held our heads high, and we decided to take further consultations. <laughs> You said it yourself. A bright blossom of blood on his forehead. You looked at me with strange eyes. Must I love you? It all began so suddenly. The reptilian forces of Megenth 
long quiescent, suddenly began to expand due to the serum given them by Charles Engstrom, the power-crazed telepath. John Westerly was hastily recalled from his secret mission to Angus II. Westerly had the supreme misfortune of materializing within a ring of black force due to the inadvertent treachery of Octopus Marn, his faithful Manarian companion who had, unknown to Westerly, been trapped in the Hall of Floating Mirrors and his mind taken over by the renegade Xanthus, leader of the Entropy Guild. Now that was the end for Westerly and the beginning of the end for us. The old man was in a stupor. I unstrapped him from the smoldering control chair and caught the characteristic sweet, salty, sour odor of manganine, that insidious narcotic grown only in the caverns of Ingador, whose influence had subverted our guard posts along the wall star belt. I shook him roughly. Preston, I cried, for the sake of Earth, for Magda, for everything you hold dear, tell me what happened. His eyes rolled, his mouth twitched. With vast effort, he said, Zern, Zern is lost, is lost, is lost. His head lolled forward. Death rearranged his face. Zern lost? My brain worked furiously. That that meant that the High Star Pass was open? The negative accumulators no longer functioning? The drone soldiers overwhelmed? Zern was a wound through which our lifeblood would pour. But surely there was a way out. President Edgars looked at the Cerulean telephone. He had been warned never to use it except in the direst emergency, and perhaps not even then. But surely the present situation justified? He lifted the telephone. Paradise Reception, Miss Ophelia speaking. Uh, This is President Edgars of Earth. I must speak to God immediately. God is out of his office just now and cannot be reached. May I be of service? Uh, Well, you see, Edgar said, I have this really bad emergency on my hands. I mean, it looks like the end of everything. Everything? Miss Ophelia asked. (laughs) Well, not literally everything, but it does mean the destruction of us, of Earth, and all that. (laughs) If you could just bring this to God's attention. Since God is omniscient, I'm sure he knows all about it. I'm sure he does, but I thought that if I could just speak to him personally. I'm afraid that's not possible at this time, but you could leave a message. God is very good and very fair, and I'm sure he will consider your problem and do what is right and godly. He's wonderful, you know. I love God. We all do, Edgar said sadly. Is there anything else? No. Yes, may may I speak with Mr. Joseph J. Edgars, please? Uh, who is that? My father. He died ten years ago. I'm sorry, sir. That is not permitted. Can you at least tell me if he's up there with you people? Sorry, we are not allowed to give out that information. Well, can you tell me if anybody is up there? I mean, is there really an afterlife? Or is it maybe only you and God up there? Or or maybe only you? For information concerning the afterlife, Miss Ophelia said, kindly contact your nearest priest, minister, rabbi, mullah, or anyone else on the accredited list of God representatives. Thank you for calling. There was a sweet tinkle of chimes. Then the line went dead. What did the big fellow say? asked General Mullah. All I got was double talk from his secretary. 
Personally, I don't believe in superstitions like God, General Mueller said. Even if they happen to be true, I, I find it healthier not to believe. Shall we get on with it? They got on with it. Testimony of the robot who might have been Dr. Zack. My true identity is a mystery to me and one which, under the circumstances, I do not expect to be resolved. But I was at the Jengik Palace. I saw the Megenth warriors swarm over the crimson balustrades, overturn the candelabra, smash, kill, destroy. The governor died with a sword in his hand. The Terran guard made their last stand in the Dolorous Keep and perished to a man after mighty blows given and received. The ladies of the court defended themselves with daggers so small as to appear symbolic. They were granted quick passage. I saw the great fire consume the bronze eagles of earth. The subject peoples had long fled. I watched the Jengik palace, that great pile marking the furthest extent of earth's suzerainty, topple soundlessly into the dust from which it sprang. And I knew then that all was lost, that the fate of Terra, of which planet I consider myself a loyal son, despite the fact that I was presumably, crafted rather than created, produced rather than born, the fate of divine terror, I say, was to be annihilated utterly until not even the ghost of a memory remained. Das ist, was soll ich machen meine Natur? Ich kann halt lieben nur und sonst gar nicht Männer umschwirren mich wie Motten um das Licht und wenn sie verbrennen, ja dafür kann ich nicht. Ich bin von Kopf bis Fuß You said it yourself. A star exploded in his eye. This last day I must love you. The rumors are heavy tonight and the sky is red. <laughs> I love it when you turn your head just so. Perhaps it is true that we are chaff between the iron jaws of life and death. Still, I prefer to keep time by my own watch. So I fly in the face of the evident. I fly with you. It is the end. I love you. It is the end. Hello, that was Zern Left Unguarded, the Jengik Palace in Flames, John Westerly Dead. It was written in 1972 by Robert Sheckley, who started writing for pulp magazines in the 1950s and apparently didn't stop writing until the day he died three years ago in New York. My fellow host today is Mark Sinker. Hello. And our guest is Pete Barron. Um, Pete, I can't hear you. Hold on a second. Uh, Try that again. Yeah, pleasure oh, yes. to be here. Uh, as you may have um, noticed um, from that, we are live today. Um, so if you hear something a little funny, rest assured it's not part of the program. <laughs> we will try to explain it to you. Um, let me just, Mark, what do you think of the, What do you make of this story? You chose it. What? what? Um. I first read it in a, um, a collection of stories called Space Opera by Brian Aldiss, which is from much the same date as the as the um, story itself, the mid-70s. 
and uh, the Red Brain that we did last series is, is also in the same collection. And those are the two that I remember most clearly. Mm-hmm. And I think... Now, why do you remember this so, so clearly? I, I, I mean, it's I a striking remember, story, yeah. but what was it that... I think, actually, the thing that really struck me was the length of the title, <laughs> which I love, because in a way, having written the title, you kind of don't need the story as well because it tells you the whole thing. And I'd never seen that done before and I thought that was very funny and it, it's always just sort of hung around in my mind as this thing that he did. Um, and I, I, I think Pete knows much more about Robert Sheckley than me. I, I know, I think, one other story and I've read a little bit for this program, but he's not someone who I, I'd grown up reading. I think his... Mm-hmm. He, He'd started writing in the 50s in, in Galaxy, and that kind of story wasn't the, the stories I particularly read at that age. And uh, I think I was probably, on the whole, a bit too serious a teenager to, to particularly um, enjoy the kind of thing he seems to have done. I mean, now I really love it, but then I think I would have felt that... It was sort of poking fun at something which should be taken a bit more seriously. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Pete, what, did, was this the first time you'd read this book? Um, no, I, I, read, I read this when I, was, uh, when I was a kid, and it's actually one of my least favourite, was, as a child, one of my least favourite um, Bullshakley stories. Why, why was that? Because uh, I didn't really get it as yeah. a kid. Um, and well, a lot of our listeners out there may not be getting yeah. it right now. So it's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough story, and as much as, I mean, I mean you can say from a, from a, from a dramatisation point of view, there are potentially eight different narrators that you've went through there. There are 12 different sections in what is a five-page five, five page story. Yeah. What I love about it now is that it is, it is a space opera done in five pages. It's a space opera. It's a bit like those in, in um, when I was a kid in, in a Rupert annual where you'd have the in story. A, I'm sorry, in a what? Uh, Rupert, it was a, it was a British sort of um, comic sort of strip cartoon type thing. Okay. And in the annual you'd get the story, which would be told as a story, then will be told as a rhyme, and at the top of the page, the very bare bones of the story would be. So it'd be Rupert goes to town, and there'd be a bit of story. So, and, that, and this, this does that, and so that's what the title does here. The title does tells you the story. <laughs> yeah. The rest of it tells the story. There is probably a, a novel version of this somewhere, which is six hundred pages long, and doesn't tell you any more. Really, it doesn't get, give you any more of a visceral punch. Well, that's that's exactly what I felt reading it. Is that this is a, it's a trailer or mm. it's a it's a teaser, and that surely there is some vast volume out there that explains all these things. And there's not, is there? This is, no. this, this, he never, Robert Sheckley wrote a lot of books, but he never, ever wrote anything else that, that sort of tied any of this together, right? I mean, as, 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 as a kid, I mean, I read an awful lot of his um, short stories. Um, I didn't read a lot of his novels. He didn't, he didn't do that many novels, actually, or his novels were often in serials or series-based ones. Mm-hmm. And his short, his short stories was what he was best at. And he's very good at boiling these things down. And I think that's... I mean, he he was a, in a lot of ways, a writer's writer and that kind of thing. He he was very interested in the craft of writing, mm-hmm. and and so this, this kind down, of a so. sort of a right inside joke for writers in a way, or possibly. For I mean, there's, there's yeah, there's a bit of both. I think in the end, I mean, he, his other thing was, as, as Mark said, I mean, he was funny, um, and science fiction authors generally weren't, and he wasn't necessarily, you know, boo his funny or you know, ha ha funny. He was he had a good turn of phrase. He had a good eye for ridiculous behavior i mean one one of his big things i think is is that human behavior re- remains relatively constant whilst science fiction goes on humans are still mad deceitful weird strange mm-hmm. and um yeah i mean lots of his other stories are all predicated on that stuff and it's the 
the science goes on around them but doesn't actually... So, like, you've got a main character or main set of characters who are acting in very uh, yeah. uh, recognizably human ways, even though everything else is around yeah, them. I mean, is... one, one, of his, one of his most famous early stories from the 50s is, is a story called Bad Medicine, where um, you've got a, a psychotic character who, is, who wants to murder his friend. Um, instead of going to see a therapist, he, he buys himself a therapy machine, and the therapy machine is set up for Martians rather than humans. And thus it cures him, well, and Martians don't have a concept of homicide, so therefore it cures him of a different Martian thing, um, at which point at the end of the story he decides not to murder him, but rather to free his Dwenzel. Which, you know, it's, it's, Sorry, it's, 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 uh, actually, I, I, I could read it, I'll, I'll find, the, find the very end. <laughs> oh yes, Kazal uh, smiled to himself as he planned exactly how he would walk Magnuson in a fiendish manner. You know, it, it's, and, and of course that, that brings another thing about Checkleon, is this, this love of language and this love of sounds because this has a lot of that of making up words of making up um sort of d- just alien languages and stuff like that and and i think he probably spent long spends spends longer in this story or probably spent longer in the story when he wrote it trying to make those sounds sound so good you know i think i think the the sort of uh which which were the best ones to read out for you when you when you, when you did it? <laughs> well, you... there are, and I mean, there's a, an amazing number of incredible Oct- names. First Octopus of all, Man is... Oct- but I've got a list actually yeah. here of every name that appears in the story. Would you like to? Yeah, Pete, yeah. Would you like to read out some of these? Start okay. at the top, uh, and I'll see if I say, I say it right or say it like you did. Uh, Charleroi, uh, Menganemf, uh, Octopus Man, John Westerly. That's an easy one. The God of Deteriorations. <laughs> The Terran plurality, Carcassonne, Saskatoon, Black Hills. Well, they're, they're, they're all. They're that, all. I, th- I, I thought that was a great touch because they are. They sound like words from a science fiction mm. novel, but they're just names of places in, on on Earth. And, and I mean, that's so be, exotic. That would be one of his things. I mean, Angos Two, Narians, the Hall of Floating Mirrors, <laughs> Sanfis, the Entropy Guild. I always love guilds. Guilds, in, guilds are fantastic, and. I really, really, really feel I actually should be a member of the Entropy Guild. <laughs> I surely I've done enough, or whatever you have to not do. Well, exactly, yeah. I guess. I've not done enough by now. To, to, be, to be a member. Of, let's start the Entropy Guild here and now. Um, Ingador, uh, the wall-style belt, um, which you've probably worn, Preston, Preston <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Magda. And Magda, of course, yes. Magda is, it's that bit for Earth. For Magda, yeah. <laughs> Again, there's a whole sort of. It's like their deity or something. Yeah, well, I think it's his girlfriend. I think it's yeah, it's his wife. Oh, yeah, his wife. Yeah, uh, Zern, uh, the high star pass. Now, I've, I've seen stories where they're all about the. It, and again, going back to the sort of Caucasian, Saskatoon, Black Hills thing, it's it's taking that um, Western aspect of space opera. It's you know, the space opera as as the um, is often likened to maybe the naval novel, but there's often bits of it which also putting the sort of trail stuff in Star Trek being wagon train in space and all that kind of stuff. Right, and, and, and Star Wars has the kind of uh, the dusty outpost in the bar and stuff. So you're saying the high star pass has yeah. this kind of western has ring that, to it. It has that feel to it. Yeah. Pre- President Eggers and his uh, poor lamented father, Joseph J. Eggers. Misophilia, mm-hmm. well, we've got a, got a touch of Shakespeare there. Uh, General Muller, well, we're looking at some war stories there. The Jengic Palace and the Dolorous Keep. Mm. They're all great. I mean, they are, they are great words, and it's it's... I love, I love Dolores Keep because 
why would you call call it <laughs> i mean afterwards after something awful had happened you would but but we know that after this awful thing there's nothing left That's who would the want point. to hang out in a dolorous <laughs> keep yeah, yeah. yeah. it's or like kind of yeah, there's the grand hall and then there's r- the rubbish hall which one should we <laughs> but there's there's it's not just names here that are so fantastic there's something about this story that it seems like he's it, it, you have the feeling of somebody at the height of his powers sort of doing cartwheels and showing off. And Absolutely. Yeah. Writing just the most fabulous sentences that, that you've ever... I, I think that one of the things that I think is really excellent about this is, I mean, it is a pocket epic that it's, it's five pages, not even, it's more like four and a half pages. He, what he does is he, he picks on the the perfect sentence to kind of open your mind to the possibility. But then he doesn't make the mistake that the epic writers tended to then make, which was to write 500 pages killing off the magic that he has created in this this fantastic sentence. You are left totally open to, to fill in all of these stories. I mean, I don't know how many mm-hmm. for, um, proper names that was, but it's kind of 20 proper yeah. names, each of which the backstory is pretty much left totally open. And you get to fill that in if you want to. Yeah, as, as, as I say, I mean, in, in the story there are potentially eight narr- narrators, but there are, there are potentially only four narrators. There are bits which could be done by the same people. Twice. Yeah, you're not sure. You're not sure, and it, it, it's, not, it's not clear, and that's great because it allows you to make that decision. And it shifts between each of the – it shifts from first person yeah. to third person to second person. Yeah, mm-hmm. at one point, yeah. And there's, 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 there's the – I mean, it's not a genre shift. There's a tonal shift, but he whilst it, whilst it may be – you know, an affectionate parody of, of space opera. I don't think it's parody is the wrong word because it's it is doing the job of it, but it's also it, it, it picks up some really. I mean, the very short bits, the bits, the bits you end on the sort of the romantic bits that you you know you yeah. messages are just they're just lovely little lines, yeah. and you know, and you can just see those, you know, your voice breaking as you're saying them as they did, you know. It's, yeah. Whereas you know the 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 phone call the phone phone call to God, I mean, it could just be bits that he had lying around that he stuck together. But it all seems to work so well that you don't... It think w- I think it works. If that was turned into a, a full story, it would be a bit dreary. Sure. Yeah. And, and... You mean the bit, it, you mean the the, bit with the Gaunt? The telephone, yeah. yeah the yeah. telephone, it's, it's too cute an idea. Yeah. I, I think there is a, um, there is a short story about um, uh, someone who sells his soul and uh, is then trying to get hold of the devil. And it's not dissimilar to this. I think it's from probably from the early 60s. And I can't now remember who wrote it. I just reminded of when I was listening to it now. And and it's actually he's on the end of the phone the whole time being put off by a board secretary that you know the devil isn't here now the contract mm. you know the contract is in the post and but that's what the, uh, you're you're getting at the other thing that I, was funny to me about that scene it was not just the the sort of the idea of talking to God but that in the middle of vast galactic battles it it, it all kind of um, could boil down to just some bureaucratic nonsense where these there are these guys in suits in an office and it's this very mel brooks kind of moment where in the middle of swords clanging and things on fire you've got a couple of guys sitting around a telephone trying to figure out if they should call somebody or not i mean at, at the heart of the story of course is is it's a it's a pain against anthrocentrism 
I'm sorry, is, wait, say, say that again and it's, say it it's slowly, it's a, it's a Pete. It's a pain against amphrocentrism. It's a pain against amphrocentrism. Because <laughs> amphrocentrism. What is, he, what, got, he picked these words up from the Martian translator. Yes, it's, right? indeed, yeah. Because <laughs> what what's being destroyed here is not, not the universe, it's Earth. Yeah. Earth is being destroyed. Now, of course, we have all these other races. We've got the Menganeth, we've got everything else. And you know the and when the president um, President Eggers, which is a very American sounding presidential name as well, and an Anglo name, Anglo mm-hmm. name, yeah, um, rings God and God God isn't there because you know God knows everything anyway. As far as God's concerned, yeah, you can destroy Earth. It's not. It's, that's not the well. It's the end of that world. It's not, it's not enough to get God on the yeah, phone because yeah. there is. Yeah, it's not <laughs> enough to get God on the phone. So so of course what. What often, bo- what, what is usually boiled down to in your average space, space opera is that it is Earth against the universe, or the Earth man is part of the the massive, you know, the ten- Terran Federation. What is it here? The Terran uh, Terran plurality. plurality. But, <laughs> Please. So, 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 but it's always the Earth. It's always the Earth man who comes up trumps. He's, he's got the ingenuity. He's mm-hmm. the hero. He, in here, the Earth man lo- loses. We lose. Someone wins. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the end of everything, and God seems okay with that. Yeah, the Megenth, perhaps the, Megenth, the reptilian yeah. forces of the Megenth horde. Yeah, <laughs> um, Mark, you told you said that the story reminds you of Casablanca. I, I it, the story had never particularly struck me as being like that until your recording of it. Okay, that's, I was I was in, I was interested to know if yeah. if you no, if you it, thought that before you I, heard. I the, don't think, and I think. When I read it as a teenager, I'm sure that, I mean, short as they are, I probably skipped through that as just kind of kissy stuff for girls and where's the reptilian hordes, please, more of the robots. (laughs) And then when I was thinking, I mean, one of the things that I think is is very nice about this story is is he has these various stars and swords kind of tropes, which are in all all the epics of, of that date put in really nicely and and the romance one is in there as well and i was just mm-hmm. thinking about so when is this sort of love at the end of time when does this trope first appear in science fiction stories and actually i couldn't really think of something that that struck me as as being part of the tradition of science fiction but mm-hmm. the version you did i thought well no i know where this comes from it comes from casablanca mm-hmm. it comes from hollywood during the second world war and I can't remember when Casablanca is actually made, but it's actually during the war, isn't it? It's it's not after it. So they didn't know how the war was going to end. Mm -hmm. And so it has this intensity because the the overall story, which is not a story they're writing, it's being written by, you know, Hitler and Stalin and Churchill and whatever, is being being played out as the backdrop to this story. And you don't know whether the big story has a happy ending. Mm. I mean, you know that Casablanca doesn't have a particularly happy ending, but the the bigger, you know, do the Megenth hordes win? They didn't, in fact, quite win in that particular instance, but you don't know that at the time. And that I think that real intensity, that that's what I really liked about that, the fact that those are the most compressed things, and uh, you don't know who's speaking, you, you don't even know if they're the same race, because the first... The, the first, first one thing suggests she says, they aren't, yeah. yeah, that they're okay, actually... Is it, is it, why, why not? Why not? Yeah. Well, just the There's way There's something she in says. your manner which I find pleasing, but your words are strange. That's, oh, right. That, that I mean, they, stuff, could, yeah. they could just be from different countries, but somehow... You oh, know, so that's a Casablanca could... connection, too. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, yeah. and I think... And he also does the other thing, which is also in Casablanca, but, again, I was trying to think of, of space opera epics and whatever, where this had come from, which is the, the companionship of people from different races Mm -hmm. and i mean there's a famous one in tolkien 
which I'm sure by 72, Sheckley was well aware of, mm-hmm. um, which is the, the dwarf and the, the elf being best buddies throughout time. And, and I think being, by, by yeah, this point, that would have been quite, quite a standard I, I'm, shape, yeah. I'm fairly sure that this would be very standard. But what I don't know, uh, in Westerns, there's the, there's, um, the Lone and Ranger and, and, Tonto. And, and Tonto, yeah. Um, I, I was going to say Silver. No, <laughs> well, he's got a certain thing with Silver as well. He... Um, now, talking about Tolkien yeah. um, and and uh, something else I don't know if we've mentioned is Dune, which this seems like a, a, a send-up of. Um, well, it's got, the, it's got the one line, hasn't it? It's got the uh, sweet, salty, sour odour of manganese. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. That insidious narcotic grown only in the caverns of Ingador. Now, now that Dune and... And the Lord of the Rings are sort of the opposite of this book. They're the non-pocket epic. Absolutely, yeah. Put it in your pocket. Your pocket's broken. <laughs> <laughs> and both of them were. Um, what are their l- causes? Well, Lord and do they have antidotes? I, <laughs> this is the I, this, antidote. this is definitely the antidote. Their causes, I think, are the these fantastic kind of sentences and and mind-expanding ideas which writers of this kind, either fantasy writers or science fiction writers, hit on, which is something quite often, I think, very visual, brilliantly visual. And then in both the case of Tolkien and Frank Herbert, they they were also um, moralists of quite a, um, I mean, very different types, actually. But essentially, they need to justify your encounter with these brilliant ideas by pulling you into a world where some uh, elaborate conflict or elaborate play of political ideas is explored at enormous length. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's the appeal of those books mm-hmm. and those kinds of books. And when it's well done, I'm I'm not particularly hostile to either of those as ideas. They are much, much too mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the impulse for making them long is you know, the urgency of the moral or political uh, examination that's going on. Or, I don't really think there's terribly much of that going on in Sheckley, except as a sort of gadfly uh, resistance against the pomposity of such things. Mm-hmm. But as Pete says, there is part of it is him just saying, well, you know, humans... Pff, God doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, his his, which his, is a very sixties idea, actually. Yeah. That that the aliens maybe they're better. Mm-hmm. I mean, he 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 isn't a moralist, and I think <laughs> his. I mean, a lot of his the stories when they do have morals, they're usually about, or that when they do have sort of messages, they're usually about you know that human beings are a bit rubbish. I mean, um, the Prize of Peril, which is. Um, the story of his, which has been made into two films, um, was made into a film in French and in German, um, and and then ripped off by Stephen King in um, The Running Man, and then made into oh. a film in that. Yeah, it's, the Running Man, the, the 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 Richard Bachman Running Man book has exactly the same plot and exactly the same thing, and the film diverts somewhat. But it is it's it, and it, it's the story where where he's said to invent reality TV. I don't think he would be say that was a particularly hard thing to invent. He does invent about 15 different formats as well of reality TV in this one story. But at the end of it, I mean, the, the story is that the prize of peril is this game show where an average Joe has a week 
to stay alive whilst being trained, hunted by trained killers. Uh-huh. Um, and the general public will be helping them out and all that stuff too. Actual companies have done this as, yeah. as a publicity stunts yeah. in the last, like, you know, seven, eight years. Not sure about the trained killer, but, you know, the, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. hunting down. But, yeah, rubber bullets, been, maybe. Yeah. There has been a game show even over here, which is called, called Wanted, I think, which had exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of it, of course, the hero realises that the people aren't rooting for the average Joe, they're rooting for the killers. Because mm-hmm. that's what we, that's... That's who our heroes are in society. And again, I, those, those are the kind of morals that he's, he's interested Those are the kind of messages that he's noticed. And, I mean, you don't, and you don't get that sort of stuff in the non-pocket epics, do you, in Tolkien? Or I, in- I think, I mean, neither, neither Tolkien nor Frank Herbert were, um, had this Sheckley, Sheckley's ear for different genres, uh-huh. I think. Both of them were basically creating their own worlds at... Um, at some length, and I mean, we re- we read a Frank Herbert story, which I think is more Sheckley-ish. Last uh-huh. last um, series, the um, the George X Mackay one, where it's much more compressed, and it's about the the different uh, alien races kind of getting along and the bureaucracy and, and whatever, and it's quite funny. But when he he moves into this sort of expanded uh, mode. There's this huge kind of weight of the story, and it, the, um, Dune is about ecology, the relationship of politics and ecology, and and um, mess, the messianic drive of particular cultures. And you know, it's an interest. It has an interesting set of ideas in it, and he does have um, a good uh, eye for quite striking characters, but they're all m- relatively minor characters who appear in this kind of bedazzling way briefly and you're quite attracted to them that they're sort of a, a poet come swordsman or or something like that or the the um uh Thufia howard who is a, a human computer and uh because computers are banned in the the dune um uh ethos the the, the there'd been some huge religious war um, across the galaxy previously, so that actually machine computers and robots there aren't any, and they have humans who are tr- are trained and sort of designed to do exactly <laughs> the same thing. And these are really nice kind of ideas, which would be much better compressed because actually Thufia Howard as a character across a third of the book is really boring <laughs> yeah. because he's a human computer. And guess what? Computers aren't actually terrible, but. You know, as a one-liner in a Sheckley story, that would be a fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah, there's a couple of I think there's two or three things in here which really make me think that that Dune is a little bit of a target for this. There's um, there's the drug that Peter mentioned. Yeah. There's um, the the guild because there's mm. loads of guilds in in Dune. I mean, it's not the only place there are guilds. There are guilds in Fritz Lieber as well. but you just straight away think of, the, of of Dune when it says that. And I think the testimony of the robot who might have been Dr. Zack is a very... <laughs> the fact it's, it's in italics and it's a sort of um, description of a bit of text inserted into a story. That was a, something he did a lot. Oh, it's yeah. a way of varying pace. Right. And, As a way and, to break it up. And sort of there would be kind of evidentiary ex- excerpts from the history or the, f- the subsequent history of the story you're already reading. And this is a bit like that. And Dr. Zack himself, this slightly ambiguous human robot, robot yeah. who may, a human <laughs> robot who may, in fact, not be telling the truth. That's the, the impression I really get from yeah. that whole section is that the, whatever Dr. Zack is, 
he's been programmed to tell you lots of stuff about what happened in the Dolorous Keep, which may not be it's just <laughs> there to sow discord and dismay and may not be true at all. Now, look, before we run out of time, um, Mark, I want y- you to tell us about this piece of music that you brought in, which I'm going to try to play here on the on the turntable and we'll see if it works. Um, well, it's called Goodbye by Perubu. Um, uh-huh. And it's from New Picnic Time, which is their their LP about what it will be like in heaven. And uh, uh-huh. um, <laughs> it's from 1979 or, yeah, 1979, I think. Because okay. we were looking for something particularly Armageddon-y, weren't we? So. Well, let's see yeah, it was called Goodbye. Let's see if it works. <laughs> there we go. I'm feeling woozy. Well, the, the Jengnik Palace is in flames. 
and, and John Westerly is dead. And Zone has been left unguarded. Um, there's a lot in the story that seems ancient. Um, we've got telephones and stuff, and we've got telephones. You know, we, still spa- use, we still use telephones spa- now. Yeah. Well, we've got you know spaceships and stuff, but then we've got swords. That's a that's a I mean that I love that. What is what's that about? That's the space that's the space opera in its at, at its heart. I, it I guess I think essentially these relics of empires that have fallen whether it's the Roman Empire or or the Ottoman Empire or whatever it is that, or the British Empire. Well at the point that this is written the British Empire but I think when it comes into um science fiction in the first place when it's uh Edgar Rice Burroughs Edgar Rice Burroughs who was writing in the in the 20s 20s, and 30s and the the, his series um set on Mars um what's the hero of that called he's called John Carter oh John Carter I knew it was called something like John Westerly and and Mars is called Barsoom and um that you know they wear some sort of roman-esque kind of uh, it, it is basically set in the past and the future you get there by rocket but when you get there it's somehow like egypt sort of feudal, or, yeah oh that, that's, that's, that's that seems very it. much like yeah. the story as well uh, but when he, when when burroughs was writing that in the 20s obviously the british empire still was still yeah. flourishing and nobody yeah. knew that it only had 20 more years to go yeah. but i think i think there's an interesting element of anxiety about and in fact i mean it's it's true in the the um epics generally that the the civilization that's there is at the point of passing and that something is being defended this is very true in Tolkien that that uh, a particular era is is essentially over and that they're trying to cap- rescue the best of it or at least not uh let it go over to the worst of it which is the barbarians sweeping across the the ruins of this this former um yeah empire and you see well, you see that in star wars a bit yeah, as well, well yeah, which yes. it just comes comes out a couple of years after after, after this. i yes. think i think what's interesting about about this whole thing is that i i i think the the western for instance the the, the written western never really got to grips with how to talk about guns beyond the you know the the draw the shoots and i think i think science fiction didn't really get to concerns it knew that weapons technology weapons technology would escalate but how do you write about that kind of fight and mm-hmm. i think i think in the end a lot of science fiction jibs out of that by you know having massive space battles between um between spaceships which is just a rip off of um hornblower you know against against the napoleon armies it's it's similar thing i think you know star wars does that absolutely with 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 the lightsaber uh-huh. by you know han solo is walking around with a blaster and then suddenly suddenly the the honorable weapon to use is a sword made of laser it's you know when a blaster would be a better and, and a better way of shooting people you know de- dealing with this stuff so yeah. and i think that's this has that here because it, it lets you have a sort of this this old school bravura. It's the right to write about something, I, mm-hmm. I, and I think mm-hmm. there's also the, this tension between the um, the kind of uh, ruthless pragmatism of modern war and some kind of nostalgia for uh, Rupert of Hensau kind of era, where actually guns are available. You know, it's it's the end of the nineteenth century. It's modern and whatever. But in Ruritania, when he's actually fighting the wicked Rupert of Hensel, they both take out their swords and clatter away across the castle, you know, destroy the candelabra, in fact, <laughs> come to think of it. Just 
<laughs> as Dr. Oh, yeah. Zach said. We, we don't know. We don't know what is, what is destroying Earth here. And we, in, in the back of our minds, because we're thinking of some sort of you know, Death Star-esque ray. But it could just be a giant battering ram from outer space that space is coming into it or something like that. I mean, it's, and I think by, by not talking about that kind of technology, you know, the, the technology here, computers, you know, telephones, as you say, that's, you know, the spaceships, but that's, you know, we, we're expecting that. There's nothing technologically zingy or new it's in not this. Really it's not really that kind of science fiction. No, the science element in it is, uh, is minimal. And all the computer is is, is no different to... Uh, to a, a gypsy with tarot. <laughs> well, there is a. There, I mean, there are jokes about everything in this story, yeah. and you mentioned the joke uh, about the the robot who may have been Doctor Zag. Yeah, and there, there's a there's, there's this great computer joke in there too, isn't there? What, what exactly happens? They, they go, yeah, they go. They ask the computer, how, how can we save? And the computer computes and says, well, and which is a great line in itself. You know, you've got to have balls to pull off that line. The computer, you know, the computer computed. It said the problem can it be solved. And how, how can we go about saving reference construction? You don't. You don't. You know, it's... <laughs> and, it, and then they do exactly the same with the gypsy and the gypsy. And, and the gypsy repeti- essentially says the same thing. Yeah, and it has this wonderful repetition, which is, you know, um, that cheered us up, we held our heads high, we decided to take further consultation. And he repeats that, word for word. And again, that's just, that's just easier it, for language, to, I think. To me, it gets... It gets at something about computers that I think still sort of survives a bit into the present day, though maybe less and less, about... Uh, the, I feel like people for a long time and maybe still a bit today see computers as sort of oracles who will come up with answers. Mm. They'll tell you things that you didn't know before um, just by some sort of magic. Um, I used to – just to tell a brief little story um, about myself. <laughs> um, I, used, I used to work uh, uh, for the Cosmopolitan magazine website back in 1996, the first ever version of this thing. And they asked people to send in Cosmo confessions and agony, uh, you know, agony ant uh, type uh, letters. But it being the website, you had an agony on computer? Well, we, they got sent, you know, into my mailbox um, just as emails. But the people who wrote in, a half of them at least, you really had this feeling that the computer was going to solve their problem. They were mm. like and, – and maybe not even – there's maybe not even a person on the other end, but there's a magic text box in this page, and the computer's going to sort through things and and tell you what's going on. And it is very much, I think, the type of feeling that people have when they go to uh, fortune tellers. Hmm. I know, in the heart of the story, I mean, the, the two definitely, or what seem to be the two definitely Earth-based scenes, which is the, the consulting the computer and ringing up God, is all about, can someone else solve our problems, please? You know, again, it, it gets this gets this root of you know when John John Wesley is betrayed by his best friend. You know, it's all other people. It's all somebody somebody else's fault. You know, it's it's not our fault. We're going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. We don't know why the Minglef are at war with us. We just assume they're evil, evil reptilians. I I like the, I like the um, the horde in it. I mean, the horde is a is a again a classic trope of the romance of empire because you have yeah. the this civilized space and then waiting outside it this undifferentiated mass mm-hmm. of the other and, in and here, here in this story you have uh john westerly and octopus marn obviously from two different species but um friends because they have this sort of enlightened uh yeah, toleration I mean, for their, their subject difference. their subjecthood is very clear that yeah. they're they're individuals and and the contrast is between the 
this horde, which is... And the horde isn't even... Um, uh, doesn't quite have its own agency. It's been woken up by the insane telepath. Yeah. Oh, that Charles Engstrom. <laughs> when, I, when I first read that, I was convinced that um, Charles Engstrom is the, is the name of Hubert Farnsworth's nemesis in... In Futurama, but in fact, he's he's called Wormstrom, I think. <laughs> but it's a similar kind it's of thing. It's a really it? yeah, similar, it he, and he, it is a similar character. This sort of, um, they, yeah. Well, this this, ca- this character is very important anyway. This this character is very important in, in Space Opera Runway, which is the 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 and the name suggests it is. It's the human traitor. It's the person who's turned his back on the human race because he's a power crazed telepath, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> and wants to destroy the world. And, and that again, that character is, and it's just it's it's there in one line. But we know that character, and we know what that character does, and, and that they are the villain of the villains. You know, it's the snivelly Charles Engstrom. <laughs> I, I also brought in a, a piece of music. Um, this piece of music uh, is called Mega Armageddon Death. <laughs> it's by the Electro Hippies. And uh, this, this is it, uh, I believe, in, uh, in its entirety. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. <laughs> that's that was that was recorded uh, for the Too John Peel long. show in uh, 1987. You sure that's not just the opening of 20th Century Boy by a t- T-Rex? Do you want to hear it again? That's, yeah, you let's, let's let's hear it again, guys. Um, we oh, got, uh, yes, the, the, it is quite the, famous. So. Okay, let's, let's the computer. That's mega Armageddon. Mega death. Armageddon death. Yeah, that's right. Seemed like a good uh, <laughs> parallel, I think, with this with this story. Oh uh, yeah, I, well, that's, that's what's going on here. It's about as compressed as it gets. I like. I mean, I think I think the the interesting. I think as Mark was saying before about the the romance aspects of this. I think that's the bit that is that is eventually most most successful in it. Um, I think the whole thing is successful. I think that's what makes you remember it. That's what makes you think. Even though it's what four lines, it's five mm-hmm. lines tops. That you come up again. You know, all there is. All there is of humanity in here is is people trying to get God to solve their problems, people trying to get computers to solve their problems. But there's this one branch that maybe suggests there's a, a little bit of softening of the cynicism in there. It's mm-hmm. sort of saying there might be something worth saving mm-hmm. if, of course, those things are referring to humans. And it's, it, Mark's right that it's it's this Casablanca-ish existing outside time, outside space. You you don't know who's talking to who. You don't know yeah what species they are. You don't know what their names are. You don't know if they even have any uh, relationship with the other events in the story at all. They might just be people living in Saskatoon or <laughs> wherever it is. Well, the I mean, it might be one of the reasons why, as a, as a child, it wasn't a favorite. My my my, I say I was a big fan of Robert Shackles as a child, and, and definitely going to the library and grabbing you know the big yellow hardbacks, the best best science fiction of the year, the, the Galantz ones. Um, the first thing I would go to was, in all the contents pages, if there was a Robert Sheckley story, uh-huh. I would read his stuff first um, because it was Why? because it was well written because it was funny. I mean, I think that's yeah. I think that's fair. And that's you know that you, there isn't a lot of funny science fiction. There's a lot of science fiction which would call itself satire. Is satire more acceptable in science fiction than comedy? Yeah, <laughs> I I think there is within the whole genre of science fiction there is this anxiety about how serious it actually is. And it's that like people, rock. Science fiction is like yeah, rock. Yeah, that it has this, this doubt that somehow it's quite as grown up as, it, as the people who are committing themselves to it know they are. 
but is the whole thing is it accepted by other grown-ups well no everyone knows it isn't there's Mm -hmm. there's other grown-ups who scoff at the whole idea and and so there's always a certain defensiveness Mm -hmm. in the genre as a whole in the culture as a whole i think there's particular writers perhaps who are also defensive but then there's other writers who are obviously unbothered and (laughs) just get on with it but i think it shies away from being funny about itself because it's a bit afraid that if it is too funny, then the whole thing will kind of shatter and will just become a joke. And it's interesting. I mean, at this kind of age, when Douglas Adams, I guess, the Hitchhiker's Guide started, what? 78. 78. So it's, yeah. it's five or six years later than this particular, but... And he said he didn't. He'd never read any Sheckley. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, which I find uh, there is there is a Sheckley novel um, which which has which is a, a, a an average Joe winning a intergalactic wide um, lottery, mm. which then um, which he's not supposed to be allowed to win because we haven't made contact yet, and so he gets plunged into the galaxy. And it has a very similar arc to parts of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. and Which, which also deals with an average Joe getting yeah. swept up in events. Exactly, yeah. I, that's, I mean, and I think, yeah. And where's the average Joe in this story? Well, that's that's a possibly another reason why I didn't like it as a child. Maybe yeah. that's the love story, actually. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. I, know, I, don't, I think the, the other thing is, I think that the, the, the thing about comedy and, or being funny is the, the idea that, oh, if you're going to be funny, you're going to be belittling science fiction, which is not what he does. I mean, in, in, in his stories, his, when he is funny, it's often due to these turns of phrases, due to this degree of cynicism. It's not actually saying that the, 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 science, the science fiction trope is something that's silly or wrong. He's just using that for a, for a springboard. I, I, I think, no, I think he actually picks up on something which is quite interesting, which is that he says, no, the, the, the poetics of it is very strong. And mm. the thing which is actually undermining it is the defensiveness on the part of these epic writers who, having done this amazing thing, you know, these images which are really stay in your mind or open up the possibilities in your head to, to dream, that they have to then sort of nail them carefully back down again with their, their terribly big, serious, important message about uh, that all humans should be listening to and thinking through their relationship to their culture or the world or the future or history or politics and that i think sheckley is quite astute in in although, although again it's a, i mean this is a quite a 60s idea there were other people who who had a similar kind of mocking attitude to this um defensive seriousness that that it was it's endemic to pop cultural things that they they doubt that they're quite as important as they think they are and so you have to drag in all the stuff that you're actually poking fun at in order to to um mm-hmm. to bolt to buttress it against exactly the, the you know your own impulses really of um you know brilliance and brightness and all this kind of stuff can you say that sentence again from the beginning <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it was extremely long i think i think, <laughs> I think it's, it's, right there. it's about having a lightness of touch it's absolutely about having a lightness of touch and being able to do being able to do that you know, do the gag about the computer and the gypsy back to back repeat a line you wouldn't you know you wouldn't get most most writers in any genre would, would be very wary about within three lines repeating yeah. the exact yeah. same line verbatim yeah for effect yeah and it is for effect and it's all about the writerliness of it and it's all about but keeping that light he doesn't I think he cares in that respect he, w- he just wants to tell a good story 
but tell it well. And the telling well is oh, Yes, he trusts the craft of sentences rather than having to bring in something to bolster bolster them, which is the, the wider message. And I think, I mean, he's certainly not alone in that. No. But um, it's, it, it's a, there's a fit, an anxiety among a lot of writers of this kind of thing that somehow the, the immediate thing is not enough. Thank you, Pete Barron and Mark Sinker. Uh, this is Knights of the Jaguar, the original mix by DJ Rolando. I'm Elisha Sessions. Thanks very much for listening.